Have you turned in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And uh, usually I have something to say before we read these verses, but tonight we're going to go straight into the verse. We'll be talking about the judgment. That's what the title is all about. The books don't lie. The books don't lie. There's books in heaven and the Lord is recording everything you say, everything you think, everything you do, and the books don't lie. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're looking at verses 2 and 3. Do you not know... And by the way, I'm reading from the King James. And what you have in your hand is the New King James. And by the way, the page number is 1015. I don't know if there's anyone here who still needs that, but still in all, there it is, page 1015. First Corinthians chapter 6, we're looking at verses 2 and 3. Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you not, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that ye shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life. And so we're given permission here to judge. Now there are verses in the Bible that says, Judge not that ye be not judged. And we could go there, that, but we're not going to go there. It's in Matthew chapter 7 verses 1 and 2. It says, Judge not that ye be not judged. But that judge over there, if you go to look at the language, it says, Condemn not that ye be not condemned. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. And you and I could be judges, all right, unto condemnation. Whatever verdict you you give to another, you will receive the same verdict. That's what that's saying there. However, the Bible does not say that we should not judge anything at all. There are things easy enough to judge. If you see someone beating up on his wife, you can judge that pretty well for what it is. If you see someone shoplifting, you can judge that pretty well for what it is. If you see somebody, whatever, you know... We know sin when we see it, at least to some degree, especially when we see it in someone else. But this is not what this is talking about. It's talking about fair judgment. You know, in America, a person is considered innocent until he is proven guilty. Is it always that way? No, I'm afraid not. Have innocent people been condemned unjustly? Yes, yes. Have guilty criminals ever gotten away with their with their crime? In this world, in this criminal system that we have today, how would you like to fall into the hands of the criminal justice today? Well, I would tell you what, I wouldn't want to fall into the hands of the criminal justice because there are people out there who have work to do, they have an agenda, and they want to look good, and they have a reputation, and they have a career to build up, and sometimes they just do not care who it is that's guilty so long as they can pin the guilt on somebody, throw them in jail, and their reputation is great, and the people languishing in jail often can be innocent. Is that possible? Oh, it's not only possible. Praise the Lord that DNA have proven some people innocent. As a matter of fact, quite a few people innocent in the last few years. Now, this of course happened to Jesus. You know all about that. Pilate said, remember, when he had Jesus there in the court and, and Pilate was investigating his case, Pilate said to the people, I find no fault in him. And so what did Pilate do? Let him go, obviously, right? No, he didn't let him go. Do you know why? Because the Jews, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the leaders of the Jewish nation, they came along and they said, now listen here, if you let him go, you are not a friend of Caesar's. And Pilate thought, oh, we can't go there. I just can't risk 
my reputation on this. And so he condemned an innocent man. The problem with that, of course, is he was not just an innocent man. He was the son of God and he did not get a fair trial. Now, there's a difference, however. There's a God in heaven who takes care of my life. All things work together for good for me. I may be judged unjustly, but there's a God in heaven who can handle this. And if he allows the thing to happen, then all things work together for good to me, even if I'm judged unfairly. And so that's how it was for Jesus. Jesus was judged unfairly, but it was all in God's plan. But it isn't that way in the world generally. In the world generally, if you do not, if you forfeited the protection of God and you find yourself in the case of an unfair judge or prosecuting attorney or lawyer or whatever it might be, you may be judged unfairly and it's really, really unfair. Really unfair. Have you ever heard of the scientist by the name of Galileo? This was 1633. Do you remember what happened to him? He happened to look into a telescope and what did he discover? The world was round. <laughs> That's what he discovered. But but conventional opinion in those days, conventional wisdom in those days said the world was flat. And so he tried to, to promulgate this finding. I mean, this was a wonderful finding. But the theocrats of that day refused to look through the, skele- the telescope. Why did they refuse to look through the telescope? Because they had an agenda and that didn't fit into their agenda. Now, I don't know what their agenda was. I haven't taken the time to look into it. But they condemned Galileo because he discovered something they did not want discovered at that time. Do you imagine that all the women at during the Salem witch hunt in 1692, do you think all these women that were hung or burnt at the stake or whatever happened to them, do you think they were all guilty? No, no. What about Nelson Mandela, 1963 to 64? Do you know that he spent 27 years in prison only because he stood up to apartheid in South Africa? Well, we could turn this thing upside down also. We could talk about O.J. Simpson, 1995. Did he get a fair trial? Well, it was fair on his behalf, but I don't know about Nicole Brown, how she feels about it. Of course, she's not alive to feel anything about it. Yeah. And when these trials are going on in the world, people are glued to their television sets, are they? Sure. They want to know the outcome. It's almost like you're watching a sport and you, it's not so much who's innocent and who's guilty, but who's going to win? Who's going to outsmart who in the thing? And people watch these things like they were soap operas or like they were, they were sports, uh, games, stuff like that. Yet, friends, at the same time, there is a trial in progress right now. The judgment is set. The books are open. Our destiny is in question right now. Is that an important trial? Oh, it is. We've been looking at the plan of salvation through the sanctuary. Um, there it is right there. And we've been walking through the sanctuary. We start out out there in the world. We find ourselves guilty of sin. We take a lamb which represents uh, the the... The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. We can cross over here a great gulf fix. We come to God because this represents God. We come to the door. Jesus said, I am the door. And we find over here justification. And we go on to the labor and we find ourselves committing our lives to Jesus Christ through baptism. And then we entered into the sanctuary which is by faith because the sanctuary is in heaven. And there we find ourselves eating the bread of life. And 
and praying with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, attending our prayers, and then we become the light of the world, the wonderful exercises that God has given us to do, so that we can grow to become more and more like Jesus. Well, we've covered all of that, so what's next? We've come against this 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 tapestry here, this wall, this division, and we need to cross to the other side. That's what we want to do. What does the model of the sanctuary teach us next? Where does it take us next? What does it do to our Christian experience? This is what we want to find out. This is what we want to learn. And so this is where we're going to go from here on out. But it's going to take some time. Little by little, message by message, we're going to develop what God's intentions are for His people in what we call the most holy place of the sanctuary. That's what we're going to go. Okay, well, in order to do that, I'm going to have you turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. This is page 787, Daniel chapter 7, 787. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel receives a dream. Now, in order to talk about that dream, I need to set a stage. Generally, in an evangelistic series, you wouldn't start with Daniel chapter 7, you would start with Daniel chapter 2. But I don't have time to do Daniel chapter 2. I wish I had time to do Daniel chapter 2. It's a wonderful, wonderful Bible study. I hope you can study it on your own if you've never studied it before. But let me tell you about it to begin with. Nebuchadnezzar is king of Babylon. He receives a dream. God gives him a dream. But he forgets the dream. And so he calls in all his wise men and soothsayers and Chaldeans and witch witch doctors and, and, and magicians and whoever else he can call in to interpret the dream for him. But they can't interpret the dream for him well, because, first of all, he can't tell them the dream. He's forgotten what it is. All he knows that that's really important, but he asks them to bring the dream back. They can't do it. And long story short, Daniel is found, and he can not only interpret the dream, but he can tell the, the Nebuchadnezzar what the dream is. He tells him that he saw a statue made of metal from the top to the bottom, and the head was a head of gold and the breast and arms were of silver and the belly and thighs were of brass and the legs were of iron and we know all that. And this was to represent four world empires. And by the way, if you've never studied that, you can go to Google and you're going to find out that the Bible was right on. There were four world empires. There hasn't been any world empires ever since that time. And you can know what they were. They were Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and of course the Roman Empire, which is pagan Rome. Well, if you go down the statue, down to the feet, you find out that the statue has ten toes. Well, that's not surprising. (laughs) As a matter of fact, check them out tonight on your feet. You'll see you have ten toes. That's how it was. And the ten toes were mixed clay with iron. And this was to, to show that they would not mix together. They would not cleave together. That's what the Bible says. Okay, so the Tentos represented the division of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire would eventually break up and become ten separate nations. England, France, Italy, Portugal, Spain, Germany, Switzerland, and three others, which were the Hurali, the Vandals, and the Ostrogoths, which, of course, were taken away later, and we're going to talk about that in another class. Well, finally, in the dream, a stone shows up, Come out of the sky. Cut without hands. The stone is coming towards the earth with great velocity. And the first thing you know, it smashes into the earth. And the stone represents the second coming of Jesus. And all the kingdoms of this world and all the governments of this world are smashed 
smashed to powder and Christ's kingdom reigns forever. It's a fantastic story. And that's how it's going to be. That's what it tells. Well, if you know anything about the book of Daniel, you know that that vision was repeated four times in the book of Daniel. Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and Daniel 11, as far as I remember, in any, in any case. So we, you, you find in all of these the same vision repeated using different symbolisms, of course, and with added information, added details, and that's how it goes. It just keeps progressing, and you learn more and more and more about the prophecies of the future by studying the book of Daniel. So I had you turn to Daniel chapter 7. Let's read verses 1 to 3. In the first year of Belteshazzar, by the way, this is Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, so and he, and there's been a, a, a space of time here. I think at the beginning when Daniel interpreted the, the dream for Nebuchadnezzar, I don't suppose that Daniel was any older than 20 years old at that time. And we maybe some of you know exactly how old he was, but I don't. He was between 17 and 20 years old at the time. Well, now Nebuchadnezzar is off the scene, his son is off the scene, and it's his grandson. His son may still be alive because the grandson was sharing the throne with his father. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and a vision in his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, four winds of the heavens strove unto the great sea, and when wind in prophecy means the winds of strife. And by the way, you see the word strove there. It's a wind that's striving. Okay? It's really depicting war. It's going to talk about nations rising up. And all these nations only rise up by military force, by overthrowing the other nation before them. And so this is what this is depicting there. And we're going to see what the sea, um, how to interpret the word sea in a little while. Just, just give me a few minutes. And verse 3 says, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse, that is different, one from another. And we won't take time to read all the verses, but if you look at verse 4, you find there a lion with wings. If you look at verse 5, you see there a bear with three ribs in his mouth. In verse 6, a leopard with four heads. And in verse 7, a nondescript beast, a beast that you can't describe because there's no such beast in this world, more or less like a dragon, dreadful and terrible and destructive this is what that beast is all about. So what in the world does all that mean? Daniel is perplexed, and he can't understand, and so he asks an angel, because he was visited by an angel, an angel give him this vision, and so he asks an angel, verses 15 and uh, 16, Daniel chapter 7, verses 15 and 16. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit, in the midst of my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near unto one of them and stood by, that's one of them, one of the angels, and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me, excuse me, he told me and made me know the interpretation of the things. Now what is it that Daniel wanted? He wanted the truth. Does everybody in the world want the truth? No. No, it's amazing. Now Daniel wanted the truth. I mean, how important is the truth to you? Is it important? 
You know, I've had some relatives that I've come to talk to them about uh, the Word of God and, and the things that belong to the Scriptures. And do you know what they would say? Don't tell me anything. Don't tell me anything. Because they feel that they will be responsible if they know anything more than they know already. They don't want to know. They don't want to be placed in a position where they have to make a decision. Don't tell me the truth. You know, it's amazing to me what people do to themselves. They don't understand what they're doing to themselves. If you'll turn with me to John chapter 17, John chapter 17 and verse 17. This is page 958. John 17, 17. We've already used this verse uh, a couple of times, but we're going to keep using it, I guess, because it is so poignant. This is John 17, verse 17. Jesus is speaking and says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now, what does it mean to sanctify something? Yeah, make it holy. Set them apart for holy use. Make them right. Make them just like Jesus. Now, can a lie do that? No, a lie can't sanctify anything. You can see it in the verse. Sanctify them through thy truth. It doesn't say sanctify them through just anything you want. You don't sanctify people with a lie. Only the truth can sanctify a person. But there are people who are going to come around and say, but they're so sincere. Well, does sincerity change a lie into the truth? No matter how sincere you are, Even if you're sincerely believing a lie, it does not make a hoot of difference insofar as what it is that you're you're sincerely believing. If it happens to be a lie, it will not sanctify you, no matter how sincere you are. And so, the Lord here is trying to point us not to sincerity, but to the truth. And it's terribly important that you and I know the truth. Whatever it is that's going on, Now, I happen to belong to a church and there are all kinds of stuff coming my way. All kinds of stuff coming my way. And there, you know, and I I even hesitate to mention some of the stuff that's coming. And every time they do, and they don't harmonize with what I've always learned and what I've always been teaching and what I know from the Bible, I always have to stop and say, don't be hasty. Study it out. You know, the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Do you know why? Because they received gladly the things that were told to them. And then they went out to make sure that they harmonized with the Word of God. And so when people come and tell me that we need to do this or that and the other thing, and I'm not going to mention these things, I take the time to study into it to make sure. It's possible Someday the Lord's going to throw something at us that we're going to reject because we've never believed it before. We need to be careful. We need to be careful. If we love the truth. Now, if you turn now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We see this played out also on a different level. We're not going to tell you who the son of perdition is tonight, but we will tell you who the son of perdition is before we're all done. However, we're looking at him now. We're in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is page 1051. 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 10 to 12. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. What happens if you don't leave, if you don't receive the love of the truth? What happens if you want to believe just what you want to believe? You don't want to believe the truth 
You want to believe what you've always believed. It was good enough for my grandparents. It's good enough for my parents. It's good enough for me. Don't tell me that this isn't true. When my wife and I first began reading the Bible, we approached her grandfather and we told him all kinds of stuff, you know, from the Bible. We were not very careful. We were a bit pushy. Yeah. And he was around 80 years old and he said, do you mean to say that all this that I've been taught is a lie? Yeah, yeah. Too bad, because I'm too old to change now. Yeah. Verse 11. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusions that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now listen, friends. God does not have to send any delusions. God doesn't have to send a delusion. If you don't love the truth, what's left to love if it isn't a lie? If you don't believe the truth, what's left to believe if you're not going to believe a lie? You see, it, you've got to love the truth and you've got to believe the truth. And if you don't believe it and if you don't love it, you're going to love a lie. It's just automatic. That's just the way it is. It's amazing. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 7 now. Daniel chapter 7. We're going back. It's page 788. And we're going to continue into the little prophecy that was given to Daniel. We're looking at verse 17. We're learning more and more. This is Daniel chapter 7, verse 17. These great beasts, that's what we saw in verses 4 to, 4 to whatever it was, 6 or 7. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall arise out of the earth. And if you look at verse 23, Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms. And so you see here that the beast represents kings, and you can't be a king if you don't have a kingdom, and you can't have a kingdom if you're not a king, and so beast represents kings and kingdoms. Go back to verse 3 with me. Verse 3, And the four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. Where did they come from? From the sea. Have you ever seen a lion with wings? No. Have you ever seen one come out of the sea? No. Then obviously the language here is symbolic. This is all symbolism. This is what we see all the time. So what does the sea represent? That's right. We can see that in Revelation chapter 17. Go to Revelation chapter 17. We're looking at verse 1. And we're looking at verse 15. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto you the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters. And so here we find a woman sitting upon many waters and she's, she's a woman of ill repute, obviously. Verse 15 now. And he said to me, The waters which you saw where the whore sits are people and multitudes and nations and tongues. That's what it is. And so the four beasts that we saw in Daniel chapter 7 rising out of the sea are four nations, four kingdoms rising out of a very populated area. And what does it say? It says multitudes and nations and tongues. Well, at that time, of course, it would have been during the time of the rise of Europe. There were more people there than there were on this side of the ocean for sure and probably anywhere else. Okay, 
The beast corresponds with the vision, the statue that we talked about in Daniel chapter 2. The king of metals is gold and the king of beasts is a lion and all that represents Babylon. Silver, of course, is of less value than gold and the bear is not esteemed like the lion is and so the silver and the bear correspond to each other. The brass corresponds to the leopard. The iron corresponds to that great dreadful dragon-like beast. In Daniel chapter 7, and I need to go back there. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, 788. We're going to look at verse 7 in Daniel chapter 7. After this I saw in the night vision and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. And you notice in the... Um, in Daniel chapter 2, the toes were made of iron, and this one has iron teeth. And then it goes on to say, It devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns, just like the statue had ten toes. And this represents the division of Europe. And so, up to this point, little by little, we see that the two symbolisms really correspond to each other. Now, these visions bring us down to the end of time. When Europe, when the Roman Empire was divided into ten sections, we are told in Daniel chapter 2 that they would not cleave one to another because it was a mixture of clay and iron there. They just would not cling one to another. And so we come down to the, to the ten horns in Daniel chapter 7. And has Europe ever united? No. Hitler tried, and um, Kaiser Wilhelm tried, and Napoleon tried, and Charles Lemagne, Charles, Charles, Charles Lemagne. If you say it in French, it's still easier, a lot easier. Charles Lemagne. Okay, he tried, and there were others that tried, and it never worked. It never worked. And as a matter of fact, I think it's Napoleon that rose up and said, you know, if it wasn't for the Bible, <laughs> I could have conquered all of Europe. Yeah, he understood. He knew, and it's true. Now there's there's another element in in Europe right now called the U European Union, and they're coming at it from a different way. It's not winds of strife. They've decided to unite over one currency, and I am wondering just exactly how God relates to that. I don't know how to relate to it. I am watching, though. I'm studying this thing. I want to see how this thing is going to play itself out because they're trying very hard to unite. And you would seem to think that there's a degree of unity at the same time is a very, very frail situation that they have. And let me tell you, if the European Union crashes financially, we are in trouble. We are in deep, deep trouble. Anyway... During the time of Daniel, of course, a stone was cut out without hands. And so what corresponds with that in the book of Daniel? It's a great judgment scene. That's what it is that corresponds with that. So we're in Daniel chapter 7. Let's look at verse 9. And I beheld till the thrones were cast down and the ancient... And by the way, the um, those who translated the Bible, they thought that this was talking about the the, the bad guys... And so they cast the thrones down. But actually, if you go to the Hebrews, it actually is saying the thrones were set down. You know, 
I beheld until the throne, the judgment thrones were set in the great judgment room. That's what it's all about. And the Ancient of Days represents God. He did sit on his throne there in the judgment room, whose garment was white as snow and hair, the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as a burning fire. Okay? And then verse 10, 11, 10, 10. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousands, thousands ministered unto him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. These are all angels, of course, in heaven. The judgment was set and the books were opened. What was written in the books? Do you know? Yeah, well, more than sins. Our sins, for sure. Yeah, every word. Every thought, every deed, everything you ever do, even every motive is recorded. Isn't that amazing? Now, we might have thought it really amazing some years ago when there was no such thing as computers. And so today we have computers and we can record all kinds of stuff. I mean, there's no end to it. If they work, of course. They don't work. They don't record anything. Yeah. Well, is God greater than a computer? Is it a problem for him to record everything? No problem at all. It's just the way it is. Now, who is it that's being judged here? What is this about, anyway? If you go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, this is page 595. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Um, the man who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes called the preacher. His name was Solomon. He's the wisest man that the Lord ever created. He gave him all this wisdom. It's a fantastic story, except for all his wisdom. It went to his head and then he lost his way and he dissipated away his life. And then when he finally come to his senses, when he was an old man and he has ruined his health and all the rest, he finally come back to the Lord. And this is the book he wrote after he come back to the Lord. It is a very interesting book. He's looking at his life that he has he has wasted and he has great counsel and advice for those of us who come after him. Well, in the end, we come to chapter 12. This is where we are. He says, let's look at the conclusion of the whole thing. He's analyzed the whole thing. He's got enough wisdom to know what's right and wrong. He's being guided by God. He's a prophet of the Lord at the same time. And so he says in verse uh, 13 and 14, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And so everything we say, everything we do, every motive we have, everything we think is being recorded. And when the judgment sits, the books are open, and your name, my name comes up, and God says, okay, let's read the book. Every life is a book. Not just a chapter. We each have a recording angel. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, there's some things I wish I had never said. There's some things I wish I had never done. Never thought. There's some motives that have driven me that I wish had never been there. Praise God that we have a Savior. You know? Oh, I'll tell you what. Do you know how lost we would be? It's it's terrible. It's terrible. God knows everything. God sees everything. And it's all coming up. So, in Daniel chapter 7, the judgments is set, the books are open, 
Every deed is under examination. When it's all over, when it's all over, Jesus is given dominion. He's the King of Kings and He's the Lord of Lords. Look at verse 26 and 27 now. We're in Daniel chapter 7. We're looking at verse 26 and 27. But the judgment shall sit and they shall take away His dominion. That's from the little horn power that we're going to talk about in some future some future talk. But the judgment shall sit and they shall take away His dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. See, this is the equivalent to the stone coming down and destroying all the kingdoms of this world and setting up Jesus Christ as Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And verse 27, And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Who gets the kingdom? We do. Yeah. Fantastic. Try to grasp what's happening. Now friends, it isn't happening here on earth. We're talking about a time, this is where it's happening and we know that this is in heaven. And so the only way human beings can get there is by faith. The judgment is set and the people are not there. We need to understand that that is, that that is so. And so the books are open and all the deeds are being read and our secrets are coming out and we're not there to face it. Jesus is given dominion after every... <clears throat> Let me try that again. Jesus is given dominion after every human case is decided, after every individual has been investigated and the verdict is brought out. Yeah. What's he trying to find out? You know, if we follow this, the world is not being judged in that judgment. No, there's nothing to judge. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. And that's all it is. If the people out there have not received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, if the people out there have never confessed their sins, if they haven't repented of their sins, if they haven't committed their lives to Christ, if they are not being sanctified through the Word of God, then if they are not the light of the world, if we are not witnesses, all of these things, there's nothing to judge. There's nothing to judge. So when this judgment is going on, it's not a judgment about the world and every individual in the world out there. It's the judgment of every Christian. Everyone who takes on the name of Jesus Christ, everyone who confesses their sins upon the Lamb of God, who receive Him as their personal Savior, then they go on to walk through life. And when we get to the wall, we hit the wall as it were. When we get to the wall and we get to the judgment scene, God says, let's see if they have lived up to their privileges. Let's see if they have received all that I have been trying to give them. Let's see if they've been loyal to me. Let's see if they've been faithful to me. And that's what this judgment is all about. That's why the books are open. It's God's people who are being judged. If you go to, don't go there, but Ezekiel chapter 9, it says, begin the judgment at the house of God. Ezekiel chapter 9. Because we are the ones that are being judged. God is got to be vindicated and you and I as individual be vindicated one by one, each one individually. Yeah. Does everyone who claim to be a Christian 
Is he really, is everyone that claims to be a Christian really a Christian? Is it possible that an individual has all the trappings, all the rituals, all the ceremonies, and in the end, they may not be Christians at all? Oh yeah, it's possible. It's, look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. I want you to see something there that strikes terror, should strike terror into our souls. Matthew chapter 10, we're looking at verse 32 and 33, page 860, Matthew 10, 32, 33. Whosoever, Jesus is speaking, whoever, let's just use English, whoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. When will he do that confession? When will he confess me before the Father? Well, when the Father is looking at my case. When the Father opens the book and begins to read about me. Jesus will be there. Jesus is there. He is in the most holy place of the sanctuary. He is at the judgment scene. And friends, if I will confess Jesus before men, Jesus says, I'll be on your side. I'll be your defender. Verse 33. But whoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. And this is not simply talking about somebody going out and saying, I believe in Jesus or giving out a track or giving a Bible study. It's taking in our whole lives. Does my life deny Jesus Christ as my Savior or does my life honor Him in my Christian walk? That's the question. In 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 30, 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 30. It's a verse you know by heart. I love it. I go back to it all the time because friends, it keeps me balanced. It keeps me going in the one direction. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 30, look at the last part of the verse. 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're looking at verse 30. We won't read the whole verse, just the bottom part. It says, for them that honor me, I will honor. And they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Does your life honor God? Does your walk honor God? Every decision do you, you make, is it to honor God or is it to indulge yourself? Is your life a representative life? This is really what all this is asking. Go to Revelation chapter 14. And I'm moving fast because we've got territory to cover. Revelation chapter 14. We come now to the three angels' messages. This is after a time when God people would have come long ere this. You can see that in Revelation chapter 7. He sends four angels to destroy the earth, but God's people are not sealed in their foreheads with the seal of the living God. And so he tells the four angels to hold the four winds, the winds of strife, the winds of war, the winds of trouble. Hold the four winds that the winds don't blow upon the earth. Because I need to seal my servant with, with the seal of the living God in their foreheads. In order to accomplish that, he sends three angels with three messages. This is where we are in Revelation chapter 14. And by the way, in Revelation chapter 7, it's talking about the 144,000. In Revelation chapter 14, it's talking about the 144,000. If we would receive these messages, if we would understand these messages, if we would incorporate these messages into our personal experience, our lifestyles, we would be developing the 144,000. God would be developing the 144,000 in us. We would become more and more and more like Jesus until we would be presented by Jesus Christ to His Father as faultless before the throne 
of God. This is what Jesus is trying to do. This is the era in which we live. This is why, anyways, we're going to study that more because we need to understand what Jesus is trying to do. You see, well, I had you turn to Revelation chapter 14 and we're looking at verse 6. The beginning of the three angels' messages there. Verse 6, And I saw another angel fly out of the midst of heaven. Now, he's in a hurry and he's flying and he's coming from heaven. He's got a heavenly message here. Having the everlasting, the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. So, this is the day in which we live. The angel has an urgent message. It's the everlasting gospel and it goes to everyone. This is supposed to go to everyone in in the world, and we're part of that program, you understand. Then you go to verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, same as Ecclesiastes said, and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. Worship Him that made heaven and earth, and the sea, and the fountains of waters. The hour of His judgment is come. Whose judgment? And when something is, when is that? Why, it's present tense. It's right now. There's a judgment going on right now. And who's being judged? We are. And we're being judged out of the books, the the recording books of all that we say and do and think. As a matter of fact, a man must be given a trial before he can be acquitted or condemned. Before he's given his reward or before he's going to be punished. Turn with me to Revelation Chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And we're looking at verse 12 in Revelation chapter 20. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were open, for the book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Who's being judged here? The dead are. Do you think that they are standing before God at the judgment bar? Some, that's the way we're, it's pictured sometimes. Why no? They're dead. <laughs> They're being judged out of that which is recorded in the books. They will come, the judges will come to a conclusion, they will come to a verdict, and then at the resurrection, the dead shall be resurrected and they shall receive their reward or their punishment. We see the same thing, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12, Jesus speaking. And he says, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Well, I guess the judgment is past. Because when Jesus comes, He comes with His reward, according as our works have been. Ah, I tell you, when you look at yourself, do you see a holy person? Do you see a righteous man and woman? When you look in the mirror, are you happy with what you see? No, never mind. Now, <laughs> never mind physically. We're, I, have you ever met anyone that's satisfied with the way they look? <laughs> I haven't met one yet. Doesn't matter how good looking I think they are. They're not thinking they're that good looking. If only they could change their noses or something. You know. Ah. Terrible. Spiritually speaking, are you happy with what you see? 
I'm not. I'm not ever happy with what I see spiritually. How then are we going to stand in the judgment day? Let's just look at three or four more verses here and then we can quit. First John chapter 1 verse 10. First John chapter 1 verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Have we sinned? Have you sinned? Are you a sinner? Don't say no. <laughs> because you'd be making God a liar. As a matter of fact, the Bible is true. We don't have to turn to Romans 3.23. I keep repeating it all the time. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? But the gift of God is eternal life. Now, who does the gift go to? Good people or bad people? Bad people. No, there are no good people. <laughs> there are no good people. Don't you know? And, you know, I don't have time to go there, but Matthew 19, verse 17, Jesus said, Why do you call me good? There is none good but one, that is God. How many people are good? There aren't any. And so the gift has to go to bad people. It's wonderful, because that's what I am. You understand? It's, it's a tremendous blessing. And so the Bible says, if we confess our sins, that's 1 John chapter 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousnesses. Yeah, yeah. 1 John chapter 2 verse 1. My little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Yeah. Last verse, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And we're going to call it a night. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are. Let us therefore come boldly. Why boldly? Because fortune favors the bold. That's why. Come boldly. Because Jesus went to the cross with your sins. Come boldly. And it says here, unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. From the soul that feels his need, nothing is withheld. In America, all, everyone is considered innocent until proven guilty unless you've got the wrong prosecuting attorney, unless you've got the wrong judge. And there's plenty of that. So you can't depend on the justice system that we have here. But it isn't so in heaven. In heaven, everyone is considered guilty. <laughs> isn't that terrible? Well, no, that's just reality. That's just the way it is. Until, of course, Jesus takes our sins upon himself. Yes, friends, listen. We can go to the cross. We can confess our sins at the cross. We can make a commitment. And then we can go into the sanctuary and enter in three, into three exercises that leads us to become more and more and more like Jesus. And when we come to this part here, when we come to the most holy place of the sanctuary, we come to the judgment hour. But the judgment is hour is based 
on what you and I have done with the cross of Calvary. What you and I have done with what Jesus did at the cross. Didn't He die there for our sins? Didn't He turn around and, and wrapped us with a robe of His own righteousness? What have you done with the robe? Are you wearing it? Have you cast it aside? That's the question that's being asked in the most holy place of the sanctuary. What are you going to answer when your name comes up? I don't know when that is. Ah, friends, listen. Let's hold fast our profession. And when we need help, come boldly to the throne of grace. There is help for every need. That's what it says. Yes. Have you given your heart to Jesus? Are you going forward with the experience you began in? Yeah. Would you like to tell the Lord that you're still on His side? This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.